Welcome to the Racing Heart Podcast presented by the National Centre for Sports Cardiology, the centre that specialises in an athlete's most important tool, their heart. My name is Alice Clemens. I'm your host of the podcast, and today I'm joined by two very special guests. The first, Andre Lagersh, who you would have heard from in episode one on sudden cardiac death, one of the founding members of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology and a cardiologist at the Baker Institute who specialises in cardiac imaging. And Matthew Heyman. Matt Heyman is a very famous Australian cyclist. He won Paris-Roubaix, one of the biggest one-day races in the world in 2016, and also had a career that spanned over 19 years in the professional ranks of the sport. Matt talks about his experience with heart palpitations before uh, Andre and himself discuss what the current research is saying, why the Baker Institute is conducting this uh, research, which Matt is involved in and what the current screening processes are for uh, heart palpitations or that feeling that athletes often describe as a fluttering heart. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is episode two of the Racing Heart Podcast presented by the National Centre for Sports Cardiology. If you did miss episode one, please go back and check it out. It's with the founding members of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology and it goes over sudden cardiac death. And to support this podcast, all we ask is that you tell a friend about it, uh, leave us a review on iTunes, share it on social media, uh, and if you do want to keep up to date with all the latest episodes, make sure you hit subscribe and head to the website to sign up to our email list or search National Centre for Sports Cardiology on all the social platforms. A quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are designed to be general in nature and should not be used or substituted for personalized medical assessment. If you do have any symptoms, concerns, please consult your GP. Welcome, Matt Haven, to the podcast. Welcome, Andre Lagersh from the Baker Institute back. Matt, can you just talk to me about, I guess, your early days when you turned professional? What, what was your awareness of your cardiology well i guess when we turned professional the only thing i was using the train off was a heart rate monitor yeah. so um you know i was saying today i've just gone through a, a vo2 max test and that was something that we were doing quite a lot of um when i was a, a junior and into the amateur ranks and nowadays with with all the SRM and, and uh, power cranks, um, that information's being collected all the time. So it's not as often that we're in the lab. But yeah, at the start of your career, everything was based off heart rate. Mm. Um, you know, every effort you did was based off heart rate and trying to predict uh, yeah, your zones and your threshold um, using heart rate. And you look at that now and realize, you know, how much your heart rate can be influenced by so many factors that it probably wasn't the ideal way to be training. And so you had an incident. What do you call it, Andre? Uh, well, I think I think broadly, as I understand, I mean, Matt's had had a long career and, and basically had very few yeah. issues. But um, uh, Matt had some symptoms with some palpitations, um, and perhaps you know Matt will be able to go into that. But one yeah. of the things as as a doctor that's a bit different to your athlete versus your normal uh, versus your non-athlete is that it's really critical in athletes to take question marks out of the head. So mm. when you've got symptoms, mm. thinking, oh, two things, there's the feeling and then the second is what the hell is it? Like, mm. is this something serious? And so we have to be really clear because when you're going up up to Wes or something at a million miles an hour, you don't want a little voice in your head going, are you all right? Are you safe to be doing this? Mm. So part of our job is to be as clear as we can in terms of working out whether something's serious or not. But um, perhaps before going into that, Matt could just Yeah, look, it was quite late. And like you said, I didn't have any issues. I go through all the screening, like all the the Pro Tour riders and um, had had never really had anything flagged, never had any issues with uh, with my heart at all. And then during one preseason, whether it was 2014 or 15, I know I was with, um, with Green Edge. Um, yeah, we, it was on a training camp um, down in uh, in Girona, and yeah, just started to feel these kind of flutters, um, palpitations, and just disconcerting. Wasn't sure what it was, um, you know, and 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 maybe the athlete is more in tune with their body the whole time and what's going on. I mean, you're constantly looking for feedback every time you're training, every time you're doing efforts, recovering, and yeah, starting to get these these you know palpitations um coming and going uh, coming up on my heart rate monitor 
and yeah, really scared and nervous. Um, you know, you you hear stories about elite athletes having having heart problems. Um, plenty of my teammates have have gone through different different heart conditions or 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 had you know um, <clears throat> whether they've you know had some arrhythmia. Um, I'm not going to get into the the medical terms. I mean, you can help me out there, but uh, you know, people along their careers, and some of them get resolved really easily, and some guys have have had to call their career. So, while many years I never had to think about it, um, yeah, it was it was a really stressful period. Just um, going through a couple of tests. You know, luckily I had a group of people I could count on. Uh, talk to the team. They sent it through. Um, and, and it got all checked out very quickly and, and I, did a, I did another exercise test while I was still in Spain and it was pretty much, yeah, look, you know, clear bill of health and then we did some follow-up tests before I went on to race and they just disappeared. But, yeah, just um, really nervous, you know, heart's pretty important muscle. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. So it was, yeah, a couple of days there, pretty sleepless nights. Was, can you clearly remember that first time you felt it? No, look, they're not. It's not like getting a heart attack or anything like that. Not that I know. It was a kind of a feeling of um, almost, I don't know, a bit of an anxiety or a bit of a flutter, um, and you can just feel that your heart's kind of racing a bit, and then it, and then went away, and and that's all it really was. But it kept re- reoccurring. You know, it wasn't something that um, it happened again. And 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 what I was trying to piece it together like anybody else. Is it only when I go above a certain heart rate or do certain things? And it was, didn't seem to be any real um, rhythm to it. So yeah. Um, and then you know you, you you have to inform the team. You have to talk to the team doctors, and you have to get those opinions. But yeah, you don't want to seem to be weak or have an issue or have a an injury or an illness. You know. So there's there's that. Um, luckily it happened in a time in my career where I didn't, you know, carry on for a month with it without telling anybody, which maybe a younger rider might do. Mm. And I was straight on the phone to inform everybody and, and get the right advice. Yeah, it's, just, it's interesting to see how different people deal with things because I, I think it's, um, you know, within the cycling environment, my experience is that, the, the way we would like people to deal with things is exactly as you've done it, which is I think there's a problem, let me deal with it. What's the best way of doing it? Whereas the issue is that, um, which you kind of alluded to, is that um, if people get a feeling that something's wrong, then you worry about how that plays out in the team, how that plays out even in terms of contracts and things like that. Because sometimes I get the feeling that there's almost like little secrets being told in the side uh, corridor um, yeah, look, we're, we're very much, um, you know, uh, you have uh, doctor-patient privacy in a team and, and, and you can, but, I mean, we're also in an environment where everybody's in, in each other's back pocket and, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a pretty small, small um, group world just inside a team but also inside the whole cycling and you don't want to have that stigma attached that you've that you've got an illness or a sickness or or, or something's not right um, and as you mentioned earlier um, to me in person that different countries deal with this in different ways and 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 you hear about it and you read about it and it's not uncommon um, that riders are, are off for a certain amount of time and I mean yeah hopefully people can see that it's that it needs to be looked at and and that it is more something like a broken collarbone or you just need to go and see your doctor and get it sorted uh yeah yeah, maybe you don't want to know the results or the outcome but just um sticking your head in the sand's probably not the best uh course of action how did the team react in terms of what did they do about it yeah look i mean um First of all, was to to bring up. I mean, uh, I'd already been tested, and that would have only been within you know a couple of months. We're talking. I'm pretty sure it was February, March. Um, I know it was before the classics, um, and so yeah, the the preseason or the annual and biannually tests would have would have just been concluded. So they would have had all the data there. They have you know years of data on me. So you know they knew that nothing would have been flagged with that. So. Um, I think more so to set myself at ease. Um, I went in and did a, an exercise um, test that was organised fairly quickly. 
And the guy running the test said, he was more impressed with my heart rate than, <laughs> than trying to look for any problems. He said, this is amazing, this is amazing, this is amazing. But, um, you know, um, you know, it threw in a few a few beats there while I was doing the test. And, and you know, he, he already just after seeing that and, and, and being around a cardiologist that, that wasn't showing any kind of, he wasn't umming and ahhing at all. Um, and then we forward those results on and uh, I think it was yourself or Maria who, who made sure that uh, another specialist and it was probably more my GP back home in Belgium who, who really wanted to make sure that she'd done her um, due diligence and made sure that I followed up with a cardiologist in Belgium and... and um, before she she was almost <laughs> the one holding me back more than anybody but which is you know which is she needed to do do her side I, I was her patient and um, she wanted to make sure that nothing had slipped through the cracks because we were sending emails from Spain to Australia to around the world and and um, but it all you know within within a couple of days I was very much um, you know I don't see it as a big you know I'd actually pretty much forgotten about it to be honest until we came here today and um and and it as as big as it was at the moment it blew over pretty quickly and i was back back racing and and not thinking about it i mean that's that's exactly what we want to hear because um because i see my job as i said before as as when things are okay we have to be really definitive about that because it's not it's, it doesn't help people to be left sort of wondering about, so we need to explain exactly what's going on and when things are clear. Palpitations are like that feeling of the heart skipping a beat or extra beats or some people some people feel them a lot, some people, um, some people have these extra beats and don't even feel them, uh, but it can be quite a disturbing symptom. It's one of the most common complaints amongst, especially amongst athletes that I see. And the, the issue for the medical person is that it can be a sign of serious heart problems, but 99% of the time it's a very benign symptom. But you have to work through that process before you can you know, pat someone on the head and say it's all okay. And it's a little bit more complex in athletes than in non-athletes because one of the, the basically the two processes we're looking at is one, trying to capture some of these extra beats on an electrocardiogram so we can work out what they look like and where they come from. And then the other is looking directly at the heart with imaging, with ultrasound or MRI, to see that the heart structure and function is normal. The thing is for that second part in athletes, um, the heart is abnormal relative to the average person because the heart's one and a half, two times bigger um, often in elite athletes. And so if, if someone has these symptoms and goes to um, a GP or even a specialist that's not used to seeing athletes, they might sort of go, oh, my God, something, there's something really strange or wrong here and, and further exacerbate what should be something that's put to bed pretty quickly. So in, in Matt's situation, it was, it was good because, one, we had the screening within a few months so we could say, right, this is what your heart looked like when there was no problems then repeated some of the testing it looked exactly the same and there weren't any there weren't any warning signs at all um, and similarly with the exercise testing and I think you wore a halter monitor yeah, for, for a day or two and there was nothing what we call complex or unusual about it so really felt completely comfortable in reassuring and mm-hmm. as I said when when we're in that position of reassuring we really need to reassure quite heavily, I believe a bit more than the average person, just because um, to take to take all of those, you know, question marks out of the mind. I was in sports psychology books they often talk about the voice in the head or the, you know, when the alarm goes off at five AM and, and the voice in your head says, Oh you know, your throat's a little bit scratchy, shouldn't you sleep in, sleep in for another couple of hours? And when it comes to the heart, I often keep that in mind and say, right, if we're confident there's not a problem, then I really need to tell Matt or whoever it is that that there is not a problem. And when you're riding along and you get that extra beat, don't give it another thought. Just mm. oh, I think that was definitely, <clears throat> and I, I can't remember how long it went on for. We're not talking a period of more than a couple of weeks. Um, and probably having that reassurance maybe helped with it going away um whether it was stress related or, or whatever brought it on i'm not sure if you know some yeah. of the triggers for this um so that's the next question like yeah. where, where the hell do these come from and, that, where and, they and, go and, to? and, and, and yeah. in that period where you where you're having sleepless nights you're thinking even you know that 
the, the first doctor says, we don't think there'll be a problem, but we're going to get you more tests. Until they were done, you're thinking, well, there's no problem, but they weren't here before. Yep. And, mm. now, and now I'm getting them, but, um, which may even exacerbate the problem and, and, and cause more. Um, but, yeah, from the time that I was told, look, this is 100% okay, and I started, you know, resuming normal um, training, I think it went away pretty quickly and it yep. might have had some stress of being compounding um, after getting the first few. Yeah. Sometimes we find a clear trigger. Often we don't and they come and then they go and we don't. There's a lot of thoughts that it might be related to sort of a virus, even things similar to the common cold could cause a little bit of inflammation of the heart and cause a bit of irritability that goes away. Um, but you know, so long as there's not any damage to the heart and all the, you know, we're, we're not we're not worried about it at all. It is a little bit frustrating, you know, like not being able to put your finger no. on exactly why or how or when, um, but but it's such a recurring theme. And it's funny, people who get them for longer periods of time, they still sort of come and go. And people spend ages trying to work out what the exact trigger is. It's like sort of the baby crying. They're sort of yeah. maybe if we put the blinds down, you know, an mm. extra inch and mm. it's really hard to work out. And you had no reoccurrence of it? No, after. since then, not that I know of. Um, yeah. I do know from my heart exams that, that I am throwing a, a beat every now and again, but I don't feel that. Um, it was a real flutter that kind of came through. and could. I'm not, I'm not talking about a... a tachycardia which is you know again i don't want to use any terms here but um i wasn't throwing 200 beats a minute i wasn't you know it wasn't really beating out of my chest and we're just talking about a flutter a bit of a, a bit of an anxious feeling a bit of a flutter in my heart and never had it since so yeah really yeah, i had you know it was a big focus for those couple of weeks while i was getting the mm. test done and then i just parked it and i've never never had any Do you have issues treatment or does it just go away. Is it just just a, relax? Yeah, take it easy. Usually, usually not. I mean, some people, and there might be people who listen to this who have um, palpitations that are really, um, really troublesome to how they feel that happen very frequently and that continue, uh, you know, for days, months, or, or even for their whole. And some people find them incredibly disturbing. And then we do, you know, there are different treatments, including some tablets. Sometimes we need to do um, electrophysiological procedures or put catheters in the heart, work, work out where it's coming from and burn it. Um, but, you know, we try, only rarely do we end up doing that because, um, because it's uh, when we work through the process and find out that it's not, you know, that it's benign or a mm. nuisance rather than a life-threatening problem, then, then in a way the less we do, the better. Yeah. Unless the symptoms are really driving someone crazy. Have you been in a team culture where or seen athletes maybe in the earlier stages of their career where it might not have been as easy for them to come forward and say, oh, I'm actually feeling this? Oh, look, I can understand fully if a, if a young rider, you know, a neo pro joins a, a big professional team and they start feeling something that they want to be in denial. I, I would understand that, um, you know, somebody who spent years working their way to, to professional level and then just to start feeling something um but i mean i think definitely in our team look the uh the doctors i think that's probably more a reflection of the the riders i think you know the medical staff um are there to help and 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 often in most teams you'll have four or five and you might find one doctor you know easier to talk to and 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 the doctors still have that confidentiality like like in any other in a normal walk of life. And again, maybe a 19-year-old rider doesn't recognise that and, and may not feel um, as comfortable. Um, and, and like I said, when I got it, I was a, an established rider. I knew the system. I knew the doctors pretty well and I knew which ones to call and, and, and how to go through the process. And that was through experience. So, yeah, look, and... and, and it's not it's not something I broadcast to be honest um, mm. we're talking about it now and it's not something that I brought up I didn't you know really tell everybody in the team at the time hey I've just had a couple of weeks of palpitations and maybe I should have uh, I kept it to myself I mean I was even in in Girona at the time and um, you know I just missed a couple of training sessions and um, you know in hindsight maybe I should have been more open and and, and you know 
hopefully uh, some of the younger guys would listen to this and, and realize, you know, so even at that age, I felt like, oh, this is something that uh, a bit of a weakness that, mm. that I didn't need to, to let on. Um, we dealt with it on the medical side and once I got the all clear, we kept going. So um, there's so many of these medical issues, I guess, that people kind of keep to themselves and, and, you know, in, in all walks of life. And then once you do open up and talk about it, you find out everybody's had mental illness problems or everybody's had a bit of depression or something. Mm. So by talking about it, hopefully we can uh, make sure that, that younger riders feel comfortable approaching uh, team doctors or or anybody outside even if it is their gp if they don't feel comfortable in the team environment because you are in that very unique scenario where your body is Income. your business <laughs> yeah. your product your yeah. asset and <clears throat> yeah even as you said at your later stages of career there was one very good year left yeah um in particular it's yeah. still it's still a a somewhat touchy subject yeah, I mean, um, no, I mean, there are enough enough people that have had had different different issues for us to know that probably in every team there are going to be a few guys that have had um, some very benign uh, issues, and some guys might have had some more serious ones. Some guys might have had some kind of treatment. Um, and I think probably in in most, I mean, even with this study, um, to see that that doing endurance sport has increased your your chance of having um some heart rhythm problems <laughs> some <Yeah>. heart rhythm <laughs> problems um which which I didn't didn't realize until I, I read the uh read the study um but on top of that you know you've got to weigh that up with as we said the the advantages of doing sport the advantages of of uh doing endurance sport and the health advantages on top of that even if we're not talking about at professional level i don't mm. think anybody should be worried about doing some extra sport for the chance of maybe getting some heart rhythm problems from a performance perspective matt went on how many years later was Perry Bay? uh yeah two or three years two or three yeah. years later at the age of 36, I think. Yeah. yeah. So Matt, Matt's been in the sport. Well, 30, maybe later. <laughs> for such a big yeah. amount of time. And he's obviously, you get to that point where the gains start to plateau somewhat. How would he, how would he, what would his heart be like at that point with so many years under the belt? And he's come out and snagged a Paris Bay victory. So I think it's interesting because. One of the one of the reasons that we're doing so Matt's volunteered to be part of one of our research studies, and one of the things that we're trying to understand is the evolution of changes, both as people get into sport and then as people retire, because there's um, there's a whole lot of studies where people have looked what we call cross sectional, so they look at athlete at point X and compare it to other people and say, geez, look, their hearts are big. But we have very few studies where we've looked at people over 10 years and looked at how the heart grows because, you know, the assumption is that the, that the athlete has a big heart because sport has made the heart bigger rather than them being born with a big heart and then, which is, possible, which is yeah. possible. But mm. it seems, the data does seem that as you do exercise, your heart gets bigger and then as you retire, it gets smaller. Um, but there's not much you know, good data in decent numbers where so so we think we're it seems that the study we're doing is going to be one of the largest in the world to look at this. Some of the feelings that we get, some of the sort of if you like scratch and sniff in the early data, uh, when people are starting sport, their hearts adapt really quite quickly. So we have 16, 17 year olds who already have hearts that are, you know, as big as people who have been doing it 10, 20 years. Um, and and don't change much year to year. Having said that, one of the interesting things is when you get a young 18-year-old who comes in off-season or with an injury, their hearts shrink or go, you know, they get smaller in size really quickly, whereas the older you get, that shrinkage seems to become, you know, less quick. Hmm. It's a bit like having, you know, the, the yoga sort of person who has nice flexible muscles and as you get older, they just become a bit stiffer and less adaptable. We get the feeling that that also occurs with the heart. So if, you're, if you do sport as intense as you like and say, for example, if we look at swimmers who tend to be people who 
train really hard age 12 through 17 then often give up if we look at them at age 40 we often we can't tell that they're ever a swimmer mm. whereas we get so and as you say i've got a lot of retirement to yeah. go before i get my heart back <laughs> yeah. to a normal size and and there's a very so the data that we have from other studies and also from a study we're doing in ex-olympic rowers is that often the heart remains really quite large you know for the rest of your life Mm. Um, so your expectation on my heart, which is spent big. 20 years and retired at 40, yep. it's probably going to take a while to... Yeah, you've got a lot of heart for a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> a lot you can of tell everyone you've got a big heart. got a lot of recovery. Do you notice that in your training load? Like, so you're talking about the heart not going back to a smaller size. Does that translate to how you train from when you're 20 or how much you have to train or the frequency to when you're... Oh, we, we, I mean, yeah, I mean, you wonder too, I guess I started and, and I wouldn't change any of my career, but, you know, as a 17, 18 year old, I was still going to school, but doing big, big Ks, even big Ks for maybe a, a professional athlete or a, a neo pro now um, to make junior world championships. So that's a, a long time that I was, and I think now training has changed a lot. Um, we've got a lot more, you know, this was still, Let's call it old school, um, big Ks, lots of strength efforts, lots of hours, and and you know I used to go well off it, but uh, it's become a lot more specific now. Um, training, you know, we're talking about training camps earlier today and saying, look, we you, you don't have as many big team training camps because we know that what's good for me is not good for the next guy anymore, and and everybody is pretty much training by themselves because there's a lot more efforts, a lot more individualized um, training programs and periodization, which you didn't have as a as a young athlete. Mm. It was just kind of give everybody the big program and see who kind of sinks or swims. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I made it through that phase. What about the – from a cardiovascular perspective, what about the screening process? You've been on – yeah. So many different teams and so many different countries and so many different squads. Yeah. How how has that changed, or was it even existent at the start? Yeah, look, I think it's uh, mainly directed by the UCI, and I'm not sure where they've had their cues from. I'm not sure if it's something that's across any of the world bodies. Um, you know, look, I haven't been part of of an Olympic Games. I'm not sure if they do anything differently for for the Olympics. But um, as far as the UCI is concerned, um, you need to to be screened annually and um, biannually you do an exercise. Uh, so you, you look at the heart under, under stress. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about this in the past, uh, you and I, Andre, about whether, you know, what – are you going to find something and, and probably not. It's They're covering themselves uh, a little bit to say, look, everybody's been screened every year. So this rider, if something does happen, look, we saw them within the last 12 months. But realistically, if those things are not getting picked up and there's no symptoms, then there's, it's probably not that necessary to screen that often. So, yeah, I've, I mean, it's comforting for me to know that my heart's being looked at every year. So, um, you know, uh, while I, other than the palpitations, I didn't have any problems. It was nice to know that somebody was checking it out um, every year. What's your opinion on that? If you were, if you were, it's a, if you were to write run, a new, new, yeah, run yeah, the UCI. it's a big debate. I, I think that there is a degree to which there's a sort of some um, insurance policy for the for the sports and for the teams to be able to, because. At least to some extent, the the thankfully rare event where someone dies suddenly, um, it is really hard to prevent. And there's been since screening's been introduced, there's been cyclists, there's been other sports people who have died despite screening. So it certainly is not a a, a sort of perfect solution by any means. Um, the thing that the th- we, you know, one byproduct from a medical and from a scientific point of view is that screening has <laughs> meant that we've data. learned a lot. We've yeah. learned a lot about the athlete's heart through screening. Um, and the only, my biggest concern with screening is if people feel that it's sort of their sort of warranty for the year. Yeah. And I always say to people, look, if you get new symptoms, what we've done today means nothing because yeah. it really is. Um, it's a completely different lot of testing and a different perspective we put on it to if someone says, I've got chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations or whatever. 
So anyone that has screening, um, you know, and the pros and cons can be debated and probably will be debated forever. Um, but if they do have screening, it's just definitely not a guarantee. Yeah. So when the, the other positive about it is exactly what happened to you, and we find that with the research, is that we do this comprehensive testing and here we do an MRI scan and you know, just really every test you can imagine, is that then if any symptoms do develop, we've got a really nice baseline. We can say, right, in 2020, January, this is what things look like, this is what your ECG, and, and then we can compare. Um, so that that's useful, but it's not in its own right a good enough reason to be introducing uniform screening processes. So what would you what would you enforce? Yeah, yeah I I must admit I'm uh, I I'm not a huge fan of screening, partly because the other downside of screening is that when we do find abnormalities, it can lead us down a path of uncertainty that in some cases, thankfully, can be resolved, but in some cases we detect heart problems where we, we don't know what to do with them. And that's the worst situation where the athlete's left with this, uh, it could be a problem and we're not sure as doctors, they're not sure. And I, I hate that situation. And, and that seems to come up more frequently than does the identifying something where you can really pat yourself on the back and say, I think I might have saved a life by picking this up. Mm. Um, that that happens in, in really fit, healthy people. Um, the days that we pick up something that, that could have caused a problem tomorrow is, is very rare. And my experience is in the few, uh, you know, sadly we you know, had, had a few, well, very few people, thankfully, but who have come through our testing that have then had very serious problems and even then going back with a fine tooth comb looking at our testing we wouldn't have picked it up so it's um it's certainly not perfect mm. and that's the message that the athletes so the big thing is get. is is looking for any symptoms yes absolutely that's the big that, marker yep and then and that's where i like the emphasis so i'd much rather people even if they think the symptoms are nothing just that's to come forward to and that's the time when we should hit the accelerator for two reasons one because we might pick something up but two if we don't like in your situation we can yeah. say don't worry put it to bed let's yeah. you know and i think that's absolutely key yeah i'm sure that those even the feeling the sensations were were felt less um psychosomatic once i yep. was told there was nothing nothing wrong with me mm. yep it's like the old scenario of you know if you've got a toothache and you and you're studying for your exams it aches like hell yeah. and if you're on a skiing holiday you don't feel it yeah. and the same I always tell people that they've got a symptom and there's the symptom and then there's the what the hell is that yeah. and as soon as we put the what the hell is that to bed then often the symptoms are much better or go yeah. away. Yeah. How, how do you view it, Matt, as a former athlete, as a team manager now, you're yeah, yeah. responsible people and yeah. also a dad yeah what how do you look back on it now i guess you've got a, a good lens on so many different yeah aspects of it and there is unfortunately as andre mentioned there is those few cases where the worst case scenario does come about and unfortunately they're the ones you remember <laughs> they they stick out in um i guess from a cycling perspective I yeah look i year. mean you know you in that instance, when I had them, you start to think, well, maybe, you know, because you are racing through your head and trying to, trying to think of, you know, worst case scenarios, obviously you're feeling a flutter in your chest and you're thinking, well, did I train too hard as a, a 16 or a 17-year-old? Um, you know, did I bring this on you know, on myself? You know, these these kind of thoughts. But And, and we, you know, we hear about young, um, fit um, athletes, um, you know, having heart heart problems and and dying on on the playing field all the time, but I think that uh, the evidence is that just just being involved in sport and I mean how much um, sport has given given me and my family. I mean, you know, you've, it's it's probably a lot more dangerous to cross the road here on a bike in Melbourne than uh, than it would be of of getting a a heart condition. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I think we'd probably be more concerned about a lot of other issues with, with riding a bike than, than a heart problem. And I'd be, you know, it would never stop me from recommending uh, sport or endurance sport to, to any of my kids. Um, you know, I think it's, it teaches you so many great skills about uh, discipline and, and about yourself that uh, far outweighs the possibility or the increased chance of, um, you know, some 
hard issues down the line. Matt mentioned the training, the thought of, oh, did I train too much? Is that possible? Uh, it's another huge controversial area that I th- my belief is, is yes, at least to some extreme. Like if, if, if you were to take all the cyclists and get them to race the Tour de France every week for six months, every one of them would be burned out and be groveling, you know, around on the road. So I, I and that's obviously an extreme, right. but I, I believe that the body can be overtrained and it's the overtraining syndrome is something we have real troubles putting our finger on, but we see evidence of people that do really extreme things of the heart looking really sort of fatigued or sick. Um, and the problem is, is that the media picks that up and sort of starts to starts to apply that label to anyone doing endurance sport or to anyone trying. We're really talking about the extremes. And then there's also clearly some individual variability, like the even the people who sort of um, select themselves to be able to do grand tours, there's that very select bunch who are excelling in the third week. It's a it's a very unique thing. So there's some people who um, who are extremely extremely resilient to overtraining, uh, and then there's some that are at a lower threshold. But we I we definitely see that affecting the heart as well. Um, and so I think the people do have to be um, not, you know, alert, not alarmed, you know, not paranoid by any means. But as, as Matt was saying earlier about how training's refined, I think we've become better at, un- and I'm not a coach, but better at understanding the importance of recovery, time off, you know, some weeks where the bike sits in the corner and you think about whatever else. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are as valuable as, as the training. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, no, very much so. Have your views changed much now you are a manager from a health perspective, from a health management point of view of athletes? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's um, you know, I just finished my UCI course in uh, Switzerland a couple of weeks ago and, you know, I'd, I'd already been a manager all this year, but, uh, you know, they made it very clear then that uh, when I signed that sheet, um, which has, you know, the riders listed for the race and the, the soigneurs and the mechanics um, all with their UCI and I sign that piece of paper, I'm responsible for them for that the duration of that race. Mm. So, um, you know, we've got great medical staff on the team. Uh, I've got full confidence in them and they would be the first ones I go to. And, yeah, I, <clears throat> and I think that has changed in the last, um, I don't know how long, maybe... I get the years go by too quick. Maybe the last, you know, eight, eight, six or eight years that uh, you know we've most teams now have a you know head injury protocol. They they they're very much they're more likely now to pull guys out of races and not let the rider themselves choose whether they carry on and and to just say look enough's enough and with any kind of injury. So I think uh, the duty of care has definitely stepped up. Um, you know, from from the team side, as far as you know, it's you know the sport is steeped in tradition and history, and and everybody likes to see those photos, the black and white photos with guys with limbs hanging off, um, riding over cobbles. But you know, the reality is, you know, it's a professional sport, and we need to look after the athletes, and and you can't have guys riding around with head injuries, or you can't have you know people riding around, and and you still have cases where where guys are finishing races with broken bones and, you know, I mean, um, if a doctor says if you can handle the pain and you want to go through with that, it's a great story. You know, it remains a hard sport, mm. but um, I don't think there's many doctors now, um, you know, they've, they'd be pretty confident that uh, the pain was the only thing that they were damaging, uh, was the only, you know, that they won't damage themselves further by carrying on. So yeah. definitely think that uh, there's a lot more protocols in place in the last, in the last uh yeah, eight to ten years. Can I draw a long bow a bit in yeah. terms of because a lot of what we're talking about is sort of illness behaviour, and you've described sort of situations in your own career where something's arisen, you've got it, you've yeah. dealt with it, and then you've moved on. Because then Perry Roubaix, the same situation came up. You're in good shape, yes. Collarbone, yeah, elbow, and then yeah, uh, elbow radius, yeah. A lot of people there would just sort of go, "Oh, how unlucky." sort of pull out the packet of chips and sat in the couch with a remote control. Well, that would be my advice now as a team manager to probably <laughs> riders. Um, 
Yeah, look, I'd done so much work in the off-season, you know, um, preparing for the season, going away, doing altitude, and and the classics really are my thing. Look, I'm I'm sitting here and, and the season's only really started yesterday and I can't wait to, to get overseas and get back into the classics. Um so yeah, it was it was more that, and and you know I talked to the team, and there was no room for me in the Giro. So what else was I going to do? And and I guess we see it all the time when riders crash. Um, you want to get back on the bike because then you you've got your identity back, and you're still you're okay if you're riding. So yeah, I don't know. It's still hard for me to describe why I was even on the ergo twice a day for four weeks. Um, seems ludicrous now, but at the time. Um, at the time, I was questioning it, but uh, I kept doing it. So, yeah, I guess that's the kind of the weird kind of. It was just for that that chance, that opportunity that I might be able to start in a couple of those races. And can we spend a couple of minutes because we've had poor Matt talking about these <laughs> medical things? So yeah. I'll step outside of my realm of and because that that race, like. My viewing as a as a non knowledgeable yeah. person watching cycling races is you get you get maybe one or at most two goes at at sort of a making a break or having a surge or yeah but it seemed watching the television that you had five or six uh, of those on that day it was like yeah. you had five men in you um I, I yeah I had a a phenomenal day. I mean, I, I love that race. It's it was something. It was the only race I really put my hand up for as a rider and said, "Look, guys, you know, the rest of my career, I was pretty happy to help help anybody else out who thought they could go for the win." And um, you know, that day it was looking, and maybe it's in hindsight. Maybe you know, when when you win it, you did everything right. Um, but I felt like I was on a on a pretty special day and. And um, I think uh, somebody from the team car tells a story that uh, I mentioned that I might go in the breakaway, the early breakaway, <clears throat> and I went back to the car and you know gave him my jersey and and then pretty much within minutes they they called my name. I didn't jump too many times to get in that breakaway, so I was still pretty fresh. Um, and yeah, it just the training the the i think a big factor was the mental freshness uh, all those other guys had been through so many classics and they'd been you know just pounding each other and fighting each other for every corner and most times the same guys win you kind of lose you know everybody goes yeah. into the season that it could be my year and then tom wins or fabian wins or sagan wins so you, you kind of just get a little bit battle weary and i didn't have that i came in super fresh got the free ride out in the breakaway. Um, and it was only when Stannard knocked me off the wheel in on Cuffle de Labra that I, you know, I felt like I was the worst rider there. I'd kind of, you know, mentally just said, oh, look, these guys are the best guys in the race. I'll hold on, get my get my spot. This is my best result ever. And when I rode back onto them there, that was kind of when it clicked for me and I felt like I had a little secret that they didn't know, <laughs> that I wasn't too bad, yeah. that I actually, and from that moment, yeah, the really positive kind of thoughts and I started making decisions and they seemed to be working and that's when it kind of started to grow. Yeah. And then there was a lot of excited people in Australia there not was. long after. I've uh, a fair few people. Uh, it, it's it's nice to come back and have people, you know, I didn't realise, I thought I was the only one passionate about Peru Bay, but it seems like a lot of people are up at night watching that race. Um and a lot of people like to talk to me about, you know, what they were doing and and, and, and I didn't realise it's been a nice byproduct. Um, I never, you know, I've been pretty selfish and I think pro athletes are selfish. They just, they're doing it for themselves. But to have people say, you know, I watched that race, I felt these emotions that you can bring out emotion in someone else through a television that, that, that they were jumping up and down or that they were crying or that they were, they were happy. I never, that was never ever my my goal and but to have people tell you that it doesn't you know i i'm speechless most of the time when when people come and tell me but i'm i'm happy to hear it and it's pretty um pretty humbling to hear or i i yeah i didn't expect to inspire people or 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 to do that so hmm. it's been nice to to hear those stories people waking their wives and kids up <laughs> and that's right. generally what it is that the dog started barking and the wife got upset and 
three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it's a kind of victory. Remember where you were, what happened, and yeah, yeah. I remember exactly where I was. Yeah, I imagine you. <laughs> I, ma- I imagine you have a pretty clear recollection well, of it. Yeah, you know, we were. You know, we briefly chatted about the backstage pass, and and as much as my memory of this, you know, we're we're getting on now. My, you know, the stone is still very real in my living room, but the memories are getting further and further away. But um, that backstage pass from from Jonesy, um, the footage from inside the car, that that kind of stuff, I. Um, it's almost becoming my memory because mm. the real memories are, are fading a bit. So I'm pretty fortunate to have that as well. So cheers, Jonesy. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, Matt had a, a heart occurrence at that point in his career. Today he's been in the Baker all day, tests, being tested by yourself, Andre, and his yep. colleagues. Why? So it's not, it's not really related to that issue. It's more just us trying to understand uh, that idea of what happens with um, the athlete's heart, how it, how it builds over a few years and then also once you change from doing, you know, 20-plus hours of training a week uh, down, to, down to less, we're yet to find a, a, an endurance athlete who fully retires. But um, well, I thought you, know, you were going to ask me straight up. I've been keeping a diary. I thought the first thing you're going to ask me was what, how much I've been training and, and what efforts I've been doing. I was wondering where I was going to find all my training data, but... You haven't really touched on what I've done in the last twelve months. Um, so, we, you, I mean, we we spoke about it briefly, but it yeah. doesn't seem to be part of the study. Like, how many hours are you currently training? That's yet to come because because okay. <laughs> we we actually do collect because I was when you were mentioning before about uh, training peaks and the heart rate yeah. monitor data. One of the other big changes that's happened in our field is that so many people have activity tracking devices that yeah. that's our best way of working out how much training you're doing. Yeah. So um, so with all of our pro cyclists active and retired, we we ask them for a log of their of their training yeah. data so that we can quantify that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and even potentially, it, depending on how much you've got, but we might be able to get the training data from when you were, you know, when you were really training hard. Yeah. Um, so, so we get this idea of how much the training, how much gender influences things. We've got males and females, and then the, the, and then have a really idea as to the impact of exercise on on heart structure and function. The bigger question behind all of that, because that, that's incredibly interesting to us, but there's a bit of a who cares element to it in a way. But what what becomes critical is then, um, as Matt mentioned briefly before, that athletes live longer, they have better outcomes in every health domain, but for reasons we don't fully understand, there is an electrical irritability, you know, that heart arrhythmias are slightly more common in, in endurance athletes. And, and we want to understand that better. Is it the bigger hearts? Is it the hearts that, you know, become, uh, you know, different chambers become enlarged or the function becomes reduced? Uh, we really want to sort of understand that better. So by tracking athletes across time and we look at the heart size function and then also a close look at the electrics with a monitor that Matt's wearing at the moment and also during exercise. So we have a really comprehensive picture and then we can have a look at, at um, you know, how how the change of the heart that occurs with exercise affects the heart rhythm properties and then also how it changes the other way around when you stop exercising and the heart sort of goes back more toward a normal size what that does in terms of uh, in terms of heart rhythm uh, things mm. because another even though we talked before about the heart probably remaining bigger the other thing is that you know your resting heart rate is 40 Ish. Still, yeah, even and, untrained. I was a bit surprised. Yeah. So that that again is a, <laughs> a factor that this thumbprint from years of training uh, remains, both in terms of and we see people decades after finishing doing a lot less exercise and yet their heart rate will still be a lot lower than we'd expect. Clearly a, a hangover, probably a healthy one, but a hangover from the years of training. And even questions like, uh, you know, do athletes – require pacemakers later in life there's that's at the moment a, a, a debate rather than a clearly answered question and so by studying people sort of for a long time and right across the age spectrum we'll have much clearer answers on this we're also looking at the genetics so mm. whether there's you know whether there's individual 
um, predispositions or individual traits that can lead to these problems. So we're, we're really looking at everything, I think. I'm hoping for no electro irritability. <laughs> yeah. Is, well, today is that I'm, a nice way of saying yeah. heart attack? Don't know. Oh, it's it more so so heart. <laughs> it's it's funny these terms get sort of. But normally, when we talk about heart attack, it's when the arteries to the heart become blocked. Yeah. Whereas this electrical instability is is more sort of. Um, like arrhythmias yeah. or, or palpitations, and um, and you know during your exercise test and on the halter, we've we've seen very very little. Yeah. So well, I don't don't uh, want to keep my electrodes good. Yeah. yeah. What was your approach? You finished having to train. You finished. Yeah. Being an athlete was it beers every day and. Uh, a lot chips more, or a lot more beers. What, what did you? Um, a few people have said I'm still race weight, which I was pretty much race weight when I got on the scales today. But um, I'm a lot. I'll tell you that my uh, functional threshold's gone from about 400 watts to 310 as we tested today. I try to train up a little bit for this VO2 max test, but obviously <laughs> didn't help. Did a four day block, one day off, and jumped onto the VO2 max test. Oh uh, look, um, you know, the, I wanted to. Get straight. I guess you're, you know, that's been my everything and mm. it's been my, you know, my identity for so long that it, it we, I say we, my wife, uh, people around me knew it was going to be a tough transition out of doing all those hours of sport. It was surprisingly in many ways a lot easier than I thought. Um, I haven't really missed the training. Um, I've only missed the racing a little bit I've never wanted to pull another number on but because I know what you need to do to get there so I and I just don't want to do that anymore so which has been really nice because if I'd if I'd left the sport wondering if I could have done another year or should have um, maybe I could have but no I'm really really done um, and you know a couple of weeks in I was thinking yeah I don't want to let myself go I've, I've, I've been this person for so long and um, I was on the treadmill in the gym trying to get to 5k and i was come on i've got 3k i want to get to five and i thought stuff it i went and had a latte in the bar so, <laughs> um so that that went on for a little while there's a lot of yeah and and it, and it was a mental state too i was really rebelling against doing the training because i felt like i'd finished and so there was a lot of times actually the first probably two months i would start some kind of exercise and not follow through with it and that kind of settled down um, and now I exercise because I want to. Um, I try to exercise three, four times a week. It's normally never more than an hour. Some swimming, some running and just and, – and, and mainly as much for – for my well-being, it's it's a mental um, it's the mental side of things. I mean, I really feel that I'm not a very nice person if I don't exercise. Mm. So um, I'm still sometimes not a nice person when I exercise, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's definitely need to to you know, we know. I think um, I don't know any of the studies, but it is good for your mental health, and um, yeah. especially for a, for an athlete that's been doing it at this level for so long. To rip yourself away from that would just be silly. Mm. Where does Matt fit in the bigger picture of this study? What are the other groups? What? What's, so, where does it go from here? So there's there's four groups in the study, but the three. So there's the young elite athletes, age sixteen to twenty three, who we're wanting to follow really almost through their athletic lifetime. So at zero to five, ten, and twenty five years. Um, then there's the um, retiring athletes, which is uh, the group that Matt fits into, and where we're follow where we're doing baseline testing and then follow up at two years, and then we have a kind of unique group um, because we can't wait 25 years for all of the results. Because in some ways, the pure part of the study is the young athletes we're following for a lifetime. But to answer some of the questions in the shorter term, we're also looking at a group who did you know endurance exercise at a very high level many years ago so we're looking at um, ex-elite rowers um, there's a few reasons why we chose rowers specifically but um, age 45 to 85 years of age who have represented Australia Olympic or um, world championship level and then the fourth group is a little bit of a boutique group which is athletes who have had heart rhythm problems um, you know or in some ways significant heart rhythm problems um, to, to give us an insight into that. So and are, they, are they currently 
exercising? Uh, the ones with heart rhythm yeah. problems. Um, a mix, but mostly yes yeah. at the time of coming in. So the majority of those athletes are with the condition atrial fibrillation, which is the most common heart rhythm problem, um, but also a few few other heart heart rhythm issues. Um, so really across all of that, we get a pretty good uh, picture of, of the change of of uh, what athletic sport does to the heart over the lifetime because it's profound. I mean, one thing I always tell people is that people who have high blood pressure or people who take tablets or whatever, these we try to measure changes in, in heart size and thickness and it might change 5%, whereas with endurance athletic training, you get a heart that doubles in size. We have nothing else that does that. Oh, over here, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's really, it, it's, it's true. The, the remodeling is so profound. And so the questions as to what that, what that does, good and bad, is, is a very live and important question. It's just that 99% of the answers we come in with fit clearly in the good basket. Um, but as I say to people, we can't just focus on the average. Like if someone comes into me and says, oh, I have this heart, you know, I have these symptoms, I have this problem, and I say, well, on average, all of your mates do really well, so, so bugger off. That's no good. Uh, need to, we need to understand the 1% or whatever who have heart problems as well and why they occur and what we can do about them. Uh, and, and in athletes, it's a very unique problem. So it's, um, it, it requires the effort we're putting in, I think. Do you need more people? Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially um, the group that we've got a lot more room for so is is the young sixteen to twenty three year old um, uh, endurance athletes. Yeah, and there's no guarantee that they'll continue. I guess. That's yeah, that's right. So it is it is difficult. It's that's partly why we sort of tried to go more toward the elite end because yeah. then it's more likely. But we've no carry on. There's some interesting questions there though as well because the ones who don't carry on, there's the questions as to why yeah. because, and then there's also the opportunity if they stop that they we the, learn yeah. what happens yeah. to the heart. So yeah. it's not lost data no. but you're right, we're expecting some of those to, to but, stop, but stop yeah, sporting. It's a bit late when they're already professional to get that first data. Yeah. Testing's all right. It's not too bad. Whoa, I've... Uh, I'll tell you about this uh, bike ride I just went on inside of the MRI scanner. So um, I've never had to pedal, what were they, seven, 60 mil cranks? Yep. 60 mil cranks inside a scanner wearing size 43 shoes. So, um, and uh, I think I only hit about 300 watts, but uh, I think it was close to 170 heart rate. So, yeah. Uh, no, look, I'm more than happy to go through this barrage of tests, not only for myself to, to have a bit of a knowledge and, you know, it's it's not something I really thought about, um, you know, during my career or, you know, I've just always wanted to race bikes. and But I had heard that people say you need to detrain your heart afterwards and you can't stop and there were different theories on that. So more than happy to be a part of the test and, and if we can um, – not for myself, but also for the for the whole study. So it wasn't too bad today. And uh, in two years' time, I'll be back to do it all again. Maybe they can change the crank length. <laughs> we're, we're trying. We're trying to find uh, more. <laughs> A way to get your heart rate to 180 while lying down inside an MRI scanner. Yeah. In 25 years, is this going to be revolutionary? Yeah. I- the data, the outcomes? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> the reason I'm doing it is, is I think I will. I, I think we've got we've already we've learnt not just through this study but other studies in the last ten years we've learnt more about athletes' heart than than in any decades before. It really there's been an explosion in our understanding. The other thing is that we understand athletes better, but. The research that at least that I've done has been almost more useful for non-athletes. So we discovered things about the right ventricle in athletes that ended up being incredibly useful in a completely different population of patients. Um, so so the, the research we haven't really talked about, but the research that it's like, um, it's like studying a Formula One car to understand how to make your standard car better. I mean, it, it's really useful. So we're going to get stuff out of this that, that revolutionary, I don't know, but I'd like to think so. Yeah, it'll be pretty good. I reckon it'll be revolutionary. Yeah, it'll be all right. Yeah, it'll be good. Any last science questions for Andre? 
Oh, um, no, I'm just hoping that my electro, I don't get any irritability in my electronics <laughs> um, in the next couple of years. Um, no, I mean, yeah, look, the study was fairly painless. Um, nothing that I hadn't done before pretty much. Um, and, yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, I was interested. I think, you know, Andre and I have, you know, as I did, went through the testing, he's been able to show me a few things and it's it's interesting to see. Yeah. So, 20 years of work to double the size of my heart well and he then reminded me that it only took about two years so um <laughs> no it's interesting interesting for me as well thanks matt thanks andre nice. thank you can't thank you enough and to sign up to this study if you are want to express your interest yes so um the best would be to uh contact us at at the baker the the um, the best contact is either myself. You can look me up through um, baker.edu.au um, and look for Andre Lagersh and you'll find my email, which is andre.lagersh at baker.edu.au. And if you contact me, then I can take you from there. And that will be in the podcast description if you want to follow through on that. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you.